thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. Hello, Kat. Hello. Now, in this week's show, how genes control how long a person can survive with HIV. Also, why zoos are bad for elephants. They die at a younger age, apparently. And pause for thought. Why dogs get jealous, just like us, and we'll find out why in just a second, Kat. Thanks, Chris. Also, under the microscope this week, we are finding out where new infections come from. So we'll be tracing the origins of HIV, as well as a new virus that recently appeared in South Africa, where it's left several people dead. What else is lurking out there in the wild, waiting to pounce on us and our immune systems, and what makes this happen? Thank you very much, Kat. And if you think you might have caught one of nature's nasties and you've been dosing yourself with menthol, then you might have noticed the effect that we're testing in this week's Kitchen Science. It really does feel like my mouth is on fire. I'm I'm impressed, Ben. I have to say I hate chilli and I'm very glad it's you doing this and not me. That's right. We're looking into how chilli and menthol can affect the perceived temperature of your mouth. So if you want to have a go, grab some mints and also some chilli and Ben and Dave will be along shortly to talk you through it. And if you've got a question for The Naked Scientist or you just want to say hi, you can email us chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. Scientists have discovered that there's a link between the genes that you carry and how long it takes for you following infection with HIV to develop AIDS. Now, AIDS occurs when HIV causes the immune system to fail, and it can take a variable length of time, anything from 10 to 20 years. And so a group of researchers in America, led by Stephen O'Brien, and he's based at the National Cancer Institute, grabbed hold of 1,833 blood samples from patients from the 1980s and the early 90s. And this is when AIDS first came on the scene. And in other words, there weren't very many drugs to treat people, and so they were able to match up the DNA in those blood samples with how long it took people following HIV infection to develop some of the symptoms of AIDS. In other words, when their immune systems failed and they began to succumb to other kinds of uh, opportunistic infections, as they're called. A really interesting pattern emerged because what they, what they found when they studied these people's mitochondrial DNA was that there were certain genetic markers that were linked with people developing the disease much more quickly and other people developing the disease much more slowly. So, for instance, people who had the J or the U5A1 haplogroups, as they're known, they developed disease much more quickly than people who carried the H3 gene marker. Now, the only thing that unites these particular markers at the moment is that they seem to affect how much energy cells can make. So the researchers think that in some way the amount of energy that's available in a cell affects the prognosis in HIV. Perhaps it affects how easily the virus can kill the cells. But whether or not that's the key mechanism is less important than the observation itself because what the researchers are saying is that if we understand how these genes affect the prognosis, then that may give us new avenues to explore for treating HIV. 
Secondly, we can also give people information about the likely prognosis if they've now caught HIV by doing a genetic test. We can guide them as to how long it might be before they begin to need further medications or they might begin to experience problems. And thirdly, it may also be that there are certain combinations of drugs that work better in certain people with certain ones of these markers than others, and therefore it will be a useful way marker for us now to begin to understand how drugs interact with HIV and which drugs people with some of these markers should be on. That's really interesting because I've got a similar story but from the world of cancer and this is really the way that medicine's going nowadays is trying to understand the the genes that are in someone's well, in a person or maybe in the case of cancer in their tumour and uh, and trying to figure out how best to treat them because it really is increasingly clear that that old saying one size fits all certainly doesn't work when it comes to cancer treatment and the more that we discover about these genetic faults the more it's possible to divide tumours into subgroups which then may in turn respond differently to different treatments and a really good example of this is the breast cancer drug Herceptin because this only works for patients whose tumours have high levels of a molecule called HER And now scientists in Edinburgh, funded by Cancer Research UK, have made an important discovery which could help to improve tailored treatment for breast cancer. And they found that a genetic test that's actually already being used in breast cancer patients could predict whether an individual will benefit from certain drugs or not. And in fact, we could see it becoming standard clinical practice in just a year or two. Now, it all boils down to drugs called anthracyclines, and there's a very common one called epirubicin. And this is a very effective drug for breast cancer, but doctors know that it only works in a certain group of patients. So, you know, obviously rings bells going, there must be a genetic route to this. And also it causes quite bad side effects, so you really only want to give it to people if you know it's going to work, and not give it to people where it won't work, because then they'll have the side effects and none of the benefits. And so Professor John Bartlett and his team have been looking at tumour samples from more than 2,500 women who've been on clinical trials for epirubicin to try and figure out if there's some genetic thing in common with the ones that respond to the drug and the ones that don't. And in the end, they found that women who had extra copies of chromosome 17, this is known as chromosome 17 duplication, were likely to respond to the treatment. But women with the normal number, that's just two copies, were less likely to respond. And here is where it gets really interesting. Because this extra dosage of chromosome 17 is already known to be involved in breast cancer because it's the region of our genome that harbours HER2, the gene that makes the protein that responds to Herceptin. And in fact, there's already an effective genetic test to look for duplication of this region because it's how many doctors look to see if you're suitable for Herceptin. So in fact, we've now got the test, we've got the drug, and so they're still waiting for the results of one more big clinical trial to come in to prove whether this is is really validated in the clinic. But we could actually see this becoming clinical practice very soon. It's fascinating, isn't it, to think that not so long ago people viewed cancer as pretty much a homogeneous condition. You had cancer in a particular organ and we thought that it was the same disease. But if you drill down finely enough, you'll find that every cancer is pretty much unique, isn't it? Absolutely, in the same way that we're all unique. I mean, you can draw cancers into subgroups of, of some types. You know, for example, breast cancer, I think, is now up to maybe even 20 subgroups. Yeah, but there's certainly six major subgroups and they all respond slightly differently to treatment. Do you think we'll, we'll ever actually have a clear picture as to what the best way to treat any given cancer is, given that uniqueness? Um, Well, I mean, certainly some of the genetic studies have pulled out similar patterns. And the idea is that you look for a molecular signature or sort of hallmarks of your cancer. And you can go, well, you've got most of these that put you into this profile or most of these that put you into that profile. Um, And in the cases already, we have some drugs that specifically target certain mutations um, in some cancers and they work pretty well. Um, So the hope is there'd be more drugs like that and certainly more genetic tests as well.
Thanks, Kat. Well, to another major problem around the world, and that's giardia. Now, if you've ever had this, then you will definitely know what it is and you won't want it again. But it's a, it's a protozole, so a miniature parasite, cause of GI infections. It causes diarrhoea, it causes vomiting symptoms, and it causes malabsorption. And it can cause very severe infections in people that don't have access to medical care. So it's a little parasite which has a little flagellum on it, so it has a, a tail that it whips around to make itself move, but it's very easy to catch. It spreads via contaminated water, and when it gets out of the body, it forms this very powerful spore which is inactive, it's very hardy, it's like a husk, and it can survive chemical treatments and all kinds of things which means that it's it's actually very very easy to transmit and that's why it's such a major problem worldwide and in the last few years scientists have worked out what the genetic code is they've sequenced the genome of giardia and this has given a number of clues as to how it's such a successful parasite because ultimately when we do these kind of studies you're looking for ways to treat the thing and one other thing that's emerged is that this virus is like the Joseph of the microbiological world. It has a coat of many colours. If you look in its genome, the virus has got a repertoire of, of nearly 200 genes which code for coat proteins. And the interesting thing is that they only get used singly. So if you look at a bug, it only ever uses one of these genes at a time. So it doesn't have a whole sort of coat of many colours on its surface. It just has a huge genetic wardrobe and it picks out of the wardrobe one particular outfit and wears that. But then its daughters might decide instead to wear a different coat from the outfit, a different outfit from the wardrobe. And scientists just didn't have a clue how this was being achieved. And, and, and also, if we don't understand how it's being achieved, then we can't use it or manipulate it in order to find new ways to treat the bug. But now there's a group of researchers who are based at the Catholic University in Cordoba in Argentina. This is Hugo Lugan and his colleagues. And they've got a paper in uh, Nature this week where they have discovered how this amazing sort of genetic shuffling is achieved. And it uses the same technique that a group of American scientists got the Nobel Prize for discovering a few years ago, and that's RNA interference. So what, what happens... My favourite... Well, what happens is that this parasite turns on a particular protein coat. It says, right, I'm going to have that red jacket, for example. And then it makes the mirror image genetic sequence of all of the other genes for everything else. And these cancel out the expression of the genes for all the other coats in the cupboard, so none of them get turned on. Now what the scientists need to try and understand is how it does that and then how it decides one day I'm going to switch coats and outfits now. And why this is so important is that if it keeps changing its outfit, it keeps changing its appearance, the immune system can't recognise it. And it also, by changing its outfit, gives it the ability to penetrate and invade new environments. So this is an important technique on the part of the bug. It's important that we understand how it works. But now there's an insight. It uses RNA interference to do it, which suggests that we might be able to throw a genetic spanner in that works and find a new way to tackle the parasite. Absolutely, because there'll only be one mechanism by which it's shutting down all these genes. That is really cool. I, lo I love that kind of area of science. It's the area I did my PhD in and I'm still fascinated by it. But now away from the, uh, the biological world, uh, the sort of microbiological world, and to the macrobiological world and elephants. Now everybody loves elephants. They're big, they're kind of cuddly in an elephantine way and they're often a very big attraction in any zoo. But there's been some rather sad news published this week in the journal Science which suggests actually that life in the zoo may not be all that good for them. And researchers from the RSPC along with other colleagues, uh, did a survey of nearly 800 elephants living in zoos and compared them to around 3,000 elephants who either lived wild in the Amboseli National Park in Kenya or were working with loggers in Burma. And the results of this uh, 
<coughs> mammoth survey were quite shocking. And the African elephants in the National Park lived for around an average of 56 years. And even those that were poached or killed by humans lived for an average of 36 years. But African elephants in the zoos only made it to an average of 17 years old. And we know this is because adults are dying younger because the death rates are actually similar among baby elephants across the two different populations. And there's two types of elephants in the world, African and Asian elephants, and they looked at Asian elephants too. And the team found the same thing. So the, the Asian elephants in Burma, the logging elephants, made it to an average of about 42 years old. But Asian elephants in zoos only lived to an average of about 19 years old. And in this case, this was actually due to differences in child survival, well, baby elephant survival. That's really striking, though. But mm. why are we seeing these adults not living so long? Is it diet? Is it lack of exercise? Well, there's a number of things. Um, they think that certainly in the case of the Asian elephants, where you're losing young elephants, that there's probably traumatic events happening while the babies are still in the womb um, because if you capture Asian elephants in the wild and then transfer them to zoos they live longer than elephants born in captivity but in the case of adult elephants the RSPCA think that zoo life basically causes stress and obesity as you can imagine it might be if you're stuck in a cage all the time um, there's also diseases such as herpes tuberculosis lameness and infertility which affect elephants in zoos and they also point the finger at things like stress caused by moving animals between zoos which is something that, that does happen especially if this involves separating mothers and their calves. Now, it's been quite a controversial report. Um, and there were researchers from the, the Royal Zoological Society of London working on this, and it is causing a bit of controversy in the world of zoos. But it does highlight that we need to do a lot more for the welfare of zoo elephants because they're very intelligent animals. And maybe should we be keeping them in zoos at all? It's um, certainly open to debate, but zoos do a lot of good work, but at the same time, that doesn't mean we couldn't improve on the work they're doing. Now, just to finish off and talking about animals, I know you're very fond of dogs and you do a great dog dogs in, do a great dog impression <laughs> okay that'll do uh, that's reason to pause for thought because scientists showed this week that dogs have the ability to demonstrate jealousy and they did this by repeating an experiment in dogs that has been done in primates monkeys and chimpanzees for example now let me tell you what happens in a monkey if you get two monkeys and you sit them side by side so they can see each other and you ask them to do a task so you can train them to pull a lever or something if every time they do the task one of them gets a reward but the other one doesn't pretty soon the one that goes unrewarded realises that it's getting a bad deal and it refuses to cooperate and it just stops well people wanted to know what would happen if you did the same thing with dogs and so Frederica Aranga, who's a researcher in Austria at the University of Vienna, set up a study where she got pairs of dogs like this and she got them both to put out a paw. When the person handling the dog held the hand out, the dog would place its paw on the hand and in response they were given a reward. But then in the second series of trials... One of the dogs got a reward in full view of the other dog, but the first one didn't. And they wanted to see what would happen if they kept doing this. And after a short while, the dog pretty soon gave up the ghost and was not interested. And as she puts it, the dog just laid down and went to sleep and refused to cooperate. And it wouldn't look the instructor in the eye anymore because it knew that it was looking so sorry for itself that um, it, 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 was, it just couldn't understand why it was being so sorely treated and it refused to cooperate. Now, this shows that dogs clearly can size up what the relative rewards of cooperating with other species or with their own species would be. And why this is important is that if you're a social species, humans are social species, Monkeys are a social species, dogs are a social species, they live in packs and groups, for example. In order to facilitate cooperation within those kind of groups, you've got to have some kind of rules by which you share the outcomes. Otherwise, one person takes everything, it's not fair, and some person's hard done by. So you have to have hardwired into you 
this fact that if you don't get a fair deal, then you stop cooperating. And that's exactly what they're seeing in the dogs. And this shows that it's probably a very uh, primitive aspect of how the brain works and processes this kind of information. And it's that sort of thing that's then fed up the pecking order, evolutionarily speaking. And that's really where we get it from. So if you have two dogs, you've got to be nice to both of them. Absolutely. No, no favouring one over the other. And that goes for children too, as well, of course. <laughs> Thanks, Kat. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist, and of course we do beam it similarly into Second Life, which is on the internet. So if you'd like to join us in Second Life and all the other people around the world who are assembled there to listen, you just go to Second Life, visit the Scilands, S-C-I-L-A-D-N, Scilands, and the programme appears there at the Naked Scientist mansion. You can pull up a sun lounger and join all the other avatars, have a chat with them about the programme, and listen alongside the lot of them. That's at 10 o'clock in the morning, Second Life time, confusing as it is, 6pm, every Sunday UK time. Yes, hello Second Lifers out there. Hope you're having fun. It is now time to get experimental. And Ben and Dave are armed with some mint, some hot chilli sauce and a thermometer to explore why some foods make your mouth feel hot and others make your mouth feel cold. For kitchen science this week, Dave has brought me not to a kitchen, but in fact to the medical room near our office in the Department of Pathology at Cambridge University. Now, Dave, this is a medical room. It's very clinical, what do you have planned for us today? Well, the main reason we're here is because it's just a convenient room. But we are going to be using something which you might find in your medical box at home. You're going to need a thermometer, just one to put in your mouth to measure the temperature of your mouth, some mints, and maybe some Tabasco sauce, if you're that way inclined. OK, so this could indeed turn into a medical emergency if we have too much Tabasco sauce going around. So what do people need to do at home? Should we start off with you doing something, Ben? Um, what I'd like you to do is take a mint and put it in your mouth. I think I can do that, yes. We have here a small tin of very strong, very little mints, the sort you might buy for a car journey, so I'll, uh, I'll pop one in. Should I be chewing or sucking? Sucking, I think, is better. Basically, I just want you to gently suck on that, and tell me if you have any strange sensations in your mouth. Well, it's very sweet, um, it's very minty, it's very nice, in fact. And it does feel that my mouth is starting to get a little bit cold. Yeah, this is something you might have noticed at home, that when you eat mints, your mouth feels really quite cold. Now, what I want you to do at home is to do an experiment to find out whether that's a real effect, or whether there's something psychological going on, something biological going on. So what I want you to do is get your thermometer, measure the temperature of your mouth before you eat the mint, put the mint in there, suck it for a couple of minutes, then measure your, the temperature of your mouth again and see if it's changed much. OK, well... We didn't take a base measurement, so I'm just going to enjoy this mint. And then why do you have Tabasco with us? Well, something else you may have noticed is that when you eat chilli, your mouth feels really hot. So I thought we could try and do another experiment, inflict some chilli on your mouth in the Tabasco sauce and see whether the temperature changes at all. So please have a go at home, measure how warm your mouth is, chew on a mint or maybe taste a little bit of Tabasco and then see how warm your mouth is afterwards. Let us know if there's been any change and we'll come back later on in the show. So try it now. If you have a thermometer at home, measure the temperature of your mouth, eat some mints or some chilli and then measure it again. And we'll find out how Ben's mouth responds to neat Tabasco sauce later on. Uh, clue is, it's very funny. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com and we should warn you now that too much Tabasco sauce can cause sweating, hiccups, red flushing and general embarrassment. 
and a, and a triple R as well. And ah. I won't go into further what, what that means. Uh, we are, of course, talking about the science of emerging infections, where new diseases come from. And in a few seconds, we'll be talking to Mike Warraby. He's a researcher at the University of Arizona, works on HIV. We'll be finding out from him where we think HIV came from. And also waiting in the wings is Bob Swanepoli, who is in South Africa and has been studying a new virus that emerged on the scene just in recent months. So if you'd like to join in the conversation, as Kat says, the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. Laying the facts bare. I say. The Naked Scientists. So, Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. I've got some questions here for you. Um, we have a question in from Bailey who wants to know how do viruses cause disease? That's what we're talking about. How does it all start? Okay, well, viruses are not actually living. They're just an infectious bag of genes. So, in other words, they are some kind of coat which surrounds infectious genetic material. This can be DNA, which we've all heard of, we've all got that, or its genetic relative called RNA. Viruses are so tiny, for instance, a flu virus is about one ten thousandth of a millimetre across, so that's too small for them to have any of the machinery they need to make new viruses inside themselves. They need to hijack a cell to do that, and there are viruses for plants, there are viruses for animals, there are even viruses for bacteria. Bacteria can catch a cold too. So the flu virus or whatever has receptors which are like viral Velcro on the surface of the virus particle. They will lock onto a target cell using this chemical receptors on the surface which docks the virus with the cell surface and they then go into the cell. Once they're in the cell, they use the cell like a factory. They take it over and make it produce thousands, if in not in some cases millions of copies of new viruses which come streaming out of the cell. They infect other cells to make more virus or they escape from the body and infect a new individual. Now, when they're damaging cells, when they're infecting cells, they can potentially kill them. That's called lytic infection. And when they kill a cell, obviously that has a consequence for us because if it's a cell in your airway, for example, it might therefore damage the mucosa, the lining of your airway, and this means you get inflammation, a runny, blocked up, sniffy nose, plus because you've got damage to the lining of the nose, you might get a bacterial infection on top so they can cause secondary infections. Or something like Ebola. Ebola is a virus, isn't it, where it basically just breaks down the tissues in your body? Yes, well, it depends on what's called the tropism. It depends on what sort of cell the virus targets, because if the virus goes into cells in your respiratory tract, then it can damage the respiratory tract, and flu, for example, can damage the lungs, and this can cause respiratory failure in very severe influenza. Other viruses have have a tropism towards other tissues. So, for example, HIV, which we, we will be talking about more in a minute, has a tropism towards cells which have a CD4 chemical marker on them. Those are immune cells. They're immune cells, and so the virus goes into those cells. It can loiter in the cells for a long time before it actually does anything, but often it can damage the cells and lead to them becoming dead being destroyed and if you lose those cells your immune system is disabled so there's a whole host of ways in which the viruses can damage different parts of the body if you look at polio virus for example this comes out of the intestine goes in the blood goes to your spinal cord it then invades motor neurons these are the cells that supply your muscles and the virus grows in the motor neurons killing them in the process and this paralyzes you so it depends on what sort of cells the virus is targeted at to determine how likely it is to cause some kind of damage to that tissue and how likely it is to have consequences that are clinically manifest or how serious they are. And a really quick one here from Lyle 
Michelle Rawlins, who wants to know, why are cold sores so painful? I get them on my nose. They're really painful. Oh, cold sores are the herpes virus. Um, this is herpes simplex. And there are two types of herpes simplex, type 1 and type 2. And cold sores traditionally are caused by type 1 herpes. And so this is a, a virus that gets into your body usually by the age of three. Most of us have picked it up, usually from kissing our parents. The first manifestation of it is it goes into cells in the mouth and throat and infects those cells amplifying the virus many, many times over and increasing the infectious dose many, many times over. And so the first presentation of it actually is you get a sore throat and a high temperature and some glands come up around your throat. It, it then appears to go away for a, for a long time. Some people would think they never see it again. But what actually has happened when it was giving you that sore throat was the virus was also infecting sensory nerve endings that supply your mouth and throat. And these nerve endings then transmit the virus back to the spinal cord or to a, what's called the dorsal root ganglion, which is where the cell body for those nerves lives, adjacent to your spinal cord. Or in the case of the head and neck, it goes up to the trigeminal ganglion, which is underneath your brain. And this is where the virus hangs out, just as a small circular piece of DNA for the rest of your life. And if you go to the post-mortem room and you study people who've uh, died, you can find evidence of the virus living in 80% of, of the population's nervous system. And periodically, and in response to poorly defined stimuli, but these can include menstruation, they can include sunburn, they can include tissue trauma. If you put a cigarette burn on a bit of skin, this can sometimes make it happen. Some signal goes back up the nerve, says to the virus, you're threatened, you need to come out. And it then reactivates and the DNA turns on again, makes fresh virus particles inside the cell. They come back down the nerve cell to the patch of skin that that nerve cell supplies. The virus comes out of the nerve, onto the skin, grows in the skin cells, producing an infectious lesion. That's cold the cold sore. sore. Yeah. And the point of this is that the virus then uses the cold sore to infect another person because when you kiss someone, you're infectious. And that's how the virus gets around. But the rest of the time, it's hiding inside your nervous system. And when it reactivates in that way, it can damage the nerve it's in. And those nerves very often are pain nerve fibres. And so they get stimulated by the activation of the virus. And that's excruciatingly painful. And it can persist for a very long time. That does explain it, yeah. Oh, I, I get them right up inside my nose. This is absolutely ouch. The good good way to treat them is with a drug called acyclovir, which is very effective. Now we're talking this week about emerging infections, including viruses, and one of these, uh, one of the best examples of that is HIV, human immunodeficiency virus. But where did it actually come from, and when? Well, joining us now is Mike Warraby. He's a professor of evolutionary biology at the University of Arizona. Hello, Mike. Hi, Chris. Welcome to to the Naked Scientist. So. What do we think is the origin of HIV and when did it first pop up in humans? So uh, this study that we recently published, we used uh, some archival samples. So we went uh, kind of in a time machine back to 1960 uh, and sequenced a variant of, of HIV from that time point. And from that vantage point, it became possible to, to kind of home in on when we think the pandemic strain first started circulating in humans uh, and it's pretty early. The, the virus maybe uh, celebrated its 100th anniversary in humans. We're, our best guess is about 1908, plus or minus 20 years. Well, first of all, let's just take a look at how you came by these samples. So what was the work that led up to you being able to say, I've got examples of the virus from 1960? Yeah, actually, it kind of traces back to last time we talked four years ago. Uh, it was regarding some work I'd done collecting virus samples from chimpanzees in the Congo. So, so that's one way you can go about investigating the origins of the virus. You can look at the modern counterparts uh, in, in the reservoir species. 
at that time, I started, uh, actually even before that, I started thinking about um, other ways that you could get at it. Uh, and, the, and the obvious thing was to try to get human samples that go f- really far back in time. And the state of the, um, the, the, the situation at that time was we had one little glimpse, a, a, a fragmentary sequence from one HIV patient from 1959, and then there was no sequence at all until the late 70s, early 80s. Because that, that 1959 sample was a, a blood sample that someone had luckily stored in a freezer for years, wasn't it? Exactly. It was something that was collected for other reasons. It was uh, genetic research to do with malaria, uh, but... Uh, uh, someone had the, the foresight to save those samples and, and Central African blood samples uh, that go back that far in time are, are uh, hard to find. And I think most people just kind of gave up and thought, okay, we got the 1959 one. We're not going to find any more frozen blood samples, so this is all we have. What I thought about was, uh, are there other kinds of samples that aren't in freezers and, and aren't so delicate? Uh, so I turned to paraffin-embedded wax uh, tissue uh, specimens, biopsies and autopsy specimens that are routinely taken in, in hospitals and clinics around the world and then put in the cellar and, and archived. And it turns out it, it's kind of painstaking, but you can get gene sequences out of these things. And who happened to have some of the right sorts of paraffin-embedded tissue you could study? Well, the, the one that yielded this sample from 1960 was actually stored in Kinshasa, the capital of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, at the... Uh, uh, at the University of Kinshasa. Uh, and, and what I did for, for quite a few years, actually, was just kind of put out feelers and did sleuth work and talked to a lot of old uh, Belgian scientists and, and physicians who had connections, had either done work in the Congo back in the day uh, or knew pe- people who did, uh, and eventually uh, turned up uh, many, many old uh, samples like this, and uh, and like I say, it was samples that were sitting right in Kinshasa all this time that yielded this sam- uh, sequence. So you go to old human tissue, you've got tissue from 40 plus years ago, nearly 50 years ago, and you can find HIV in that. What does that tell you about where HIV came from, and how do you wind back the genetic clock to work out when it first popped up in humans? Okay, the first thing it tells us... Uh, is you can compare the 1960 Kinshasa sequence to the 1959 Kinshasa sequence. And it's kind of like having a human genome. It's great. It tells you lots of things. As soon as you have a chimp genome to compare against it, there's a whole lot of other things that you can tell by comparing. Once we had these two viruses and put them side by side, we could see that they were really pretty surprisingly divergent. Uh, so even at that early date in 1960, a direct comparison of the sequences indicated, okay, these things ha- have spent a long time evolving away from their common ancestor, decades and decades. The other thing that we could do now is plug those early sequences into a more sophisticated analysis using more than 100 sequences uh, worldwide, and they really helped calibrate the molecular clock of these viruses uh, and, and allowed us to uh, estimate with a lot of precision when the virus started spreading in humans. And like I say, it's many decades before even 1960. But something must have happened, say, 100 years ago in that part of Africa to make HIV appear. The closest relative of HIV is SIV, a virus which you find in chimpanzees. So what was going on in that part of Africa that meant that this chimpanzee virus got into people? 
Exactly. So, th- so this is one of the, the coolest things about the finding. Um, so f- first of all, there are all sorts of SIVs from uh, different primates that are circulating out there. And so this big question is, uh, if these things have been around, uh, why didn't they cross in earlier or later? Why now? Uh, why at this point? Uh, and when we matched up the timing of these uh, genetic analyses of the viruses uh, against what was happening in that epicenter region in Central Africa. For for me, it was a surprise. I didn't realize how uh, little urbanization there was in that region until that time. But basically, in the whole area around southeast Cameroon, where we think the chimp virus that produced the pandemic strain of AIDS uh, entered humans, there were basically no cities uh, at the uh, the turn of the 19th century, and it wasn't until uh, about that time that places like Kinshasa were established as as colonial administrative and, and trading centers. So you think it was people moving in and establishing cities that basically got the thing going? I, I, I think uh, it's almost too uh, too much of a coincidence to to dismiss that. Um, what I think happened was. HIV is actually a, a fairly poorly transmitted virus, human to human. You kind of have to set the stage for it uh, to to survive and create a chain of, of transmission. Otherwise, viruses entering from chimps might get into one or two people, but then die out. So, what do you think happened? Uh, well, with with the advent of cities in the region, cities. Uh, make life a lot easier for HIV. They bring people into high densities. You often have high-risk behaviors like uh, prostitution uh, uh, that uh, facilitate the movement of the virus from person to person. And we talk about this magic number of of, of viruses, uh, a basic reproductive number of one, which means a virus which on average, your, your average infected person infects at least one other person will persist in the population. If it's below that number, it goes extinct. The advent of, of urbanization in this area may have pushed that magic number above one for HIV. And just very finally, Mike, and briefly, um, I think probably one of the other things to mention might be people immunizing people, because when we set up cities, weren't they exploring vaccines and things in those early days? And could that not also have been how it happened? Because people weren't so rigorous with sterilizing needles then as we are now. This is definitely one of the things that's been discussed as as a possible uh, uh, player in, in, in the establishment of the virus. My thinking on this is, if you actually look at uh, the timing of those events, people like Preston Marks have talked about the spread of disposable needles. That's actually, in, in a large part, after this timing uh, that, that, that we're pointing to. Uh, and the bulk of the transmission of the virus in sub-Saharan Africa still today is through sexual transmission. And I don't see any reason to think that uh, the establishment of the virus um, had to do with uh, with things like uh, dirty needles either. They probably play a minor role in transmission, but I don't think they're the key. So it's more likely that it's all down to that good old-fashioned population. Thank you very much, Mike Warby from the University of Arizona.
Now, as well as HIV, there's been numerous and numerous infections that have plagued us, a human population, in the past. And they've often come about quite suddenly, and they usually come from other animal species. For example, diseases such as SARS, or bird flu as we know it, is a good example of these kind of emerging infectious diseases, as they're known. But what does cause an infection to jump the species barrier in this way? We sent Mira Senthalingam along to meet Kate Jones from the Zoological Society in London, where she's been working on an emerging disease map to try and pinpoint where the next pandemic might pop up. Emerging infectious diseases are diseases that have basically increased in incidence, impact or, or range, or they've newly evolved, like um, multi-drug resistance TB or malaria, or entered the human population for the first time, like SARS or Ebola or HIV AIDS. And what exactly are the factors that cause these diseases to emerge in the first place? Well, it's it's usually because there's a change in the transmission dynamics between and within host populations. So you have populations of humans, wildlife and domestic animals all interacting and and changes which change those dynamics between these populations and within host populations cause these diseases to enter the human population for the first time. What are the actual changes that happen? So it could be increased intensification of agriculture so that you get more contact between domestic animals and humans. It could be going into a ranges of wild animals that people didn't do before because of bushmeat hunting and so that you're exposed to uh, different diseases. So diseases and pathogens do, don't want to kill their host because they're evolving with them. But it's when you get a change in this transmission dynamics and it's suddenly it's new for the pathogen. That's where it causes the problem because pathogens don't actually want you to die because they're, your, they're living in you. Now, when it comes to emerging infectious diseases, there are obviously lots of different types. So what are the factors that influence these different types? We thought originally about infectious, emerging infectious diseases all as a one thing. And then it became obvious to us that there were different drivers for the different things. So we cut it up into broadly different types. So drug-resistant emerging infectious diseases like drug-resistant TB, vector-borne diseases such as malaria. And then we thought about zoonotic. This is a disease from wildlife that entered the human population, such as Ebola, AIDS or, or SARS. Those are the broad categories that we use. So what were the different drivers for the different diseases playing more crucial roles in them? A human population density is absolutely critical for predicting the probability of an emerging infectious disease happening because you've got more people, more chance of, of infection. But for drug-resistant ones, human growth is actually more important. So the rate of population growth is more important. Or, for example, zoonotic pathogens, we were finding that, OK, human population density is actually really important but the other driver that was equally as important was the distribution of possible hosts. Um, in this case, we used wildlife biodiversity. So earlier this year, you managed to create this map that basically showed hotspots um, on a global scale of where these diseases are occurring more often. We took a really innovative, multidisciplinary approach. So I study broad scale biodiversity patterns. So I'm not an epidemiologist at all. But I was working with people who were. But the problem with the field as, as it stood uh, before we, we tried to do this was that people were looking at single diseases and not taking a really broad scale approach to think about, well, what are the processes behind those patterns? So what we did was we tried to think about an emerging infectious disease and not just the disease, but the event. So the first time in space and time that that pathogen entered the human population. So we tried to model that event because we wanted to work out, well, what were the factors that were affecting 
that event happening. So maybe we could predict and maybe prevent it in the future. And are there particular examples of diseases that you managed to think about the factors for then? Yeah, so um, we try to do this in a general approach, but a few examples would be, say, um, Nipah Hendra virus in Malaysia. This is a zoonotic, this is a disease from wildlife. So what happened was there was an intensification of pig farming in the region. And so people put pigs in natural forest for the first time. And there's an interaction between the bats and the pigs in the forest. And so the pigs were eating fruit that the bats had eaten. Bats have Nipah Hendra virus naturally and they cope with it in their populations. Pigs, however, have never been exposed to that. And the humans which were handling the pigs had never been exposed either. And so you had an emerging infectious disease event of this really nasty disease. So is it safe to say that the fact that we're moving closer and closer to animals is causing a, a, a big change in the emergence of these diseases? That's a really good question, and that's what we were trying to try and answer. Our first result coming out of this, this huge database, was that the incidence of emerging infectious diseases actually increased over time. What we then did was plot it spatially. So normally, in my biodiversity studies, you find a lot more biodiversity, a lot more things in the tropics. Now, with emerging infectious disease events, the opposite is true. You get more in the north and more in the south and fewer in the tropics. So we were thinking that possibly that shows you that biology is important, but there are other socioeconomic factors involved which we needed to model. Quite frighteningly, the hotspots of diseases since 1940 have been in the really big capital cities of the world, so London, New York and Tokyo. So maybe one possible explanation is that you put more money into antibiotics and you're getting a lot more emergence of these diseases which are drug resistance. The other interesting, really interesting factor was if you look at the zoonotic pathogens, they're affected by human population density but also the density of other wildlife in the, in the region which makes perfect sense really so it's it's not just that you've got high population densities of humans or wildlife it's the interaction of those two things in a way it gives added value to preserving wild areas to keeping them wild because we're preventing horrible <laughs> emerging infectious diseases coming and entering the human populations so basically it all comes down to a rising and more mobile human population bringing us and animal groups closer together not too close I hope and this leads to infections jumping across the species barrier and that was Kate Jones from the Zoological Society in London talking to Mira Senthillingham Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science The Naked Scientists this is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Kat Arney, and we're talking this week about where new infections come from. And recently, not so long ago, a new and fatal strain of a virus appeared in South Africa after a patient was flown in from Zambia for some emergency treatment. The infection also spread to a number of other people before it was contained, and samples from the virus then showed that it was some kind of rodent-borne arena virus, as it was then termed, and it had never been seen in humans before. But where did it come from, and should we expect to see more cases? Well, Robert Swanepoel is from the National Institute for Communicable Diseases in South Africa and he joins us now. Hello, Bob. Hello there. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. So tell us what happened with this case. Tell us a bit about the history. Well, this was a travel agent, a 36-year-old lady who worked in Lusaka. And unfortunately, shortly after she got ill, the beginning of diseases are always relatively mild to what happened subsequently. But shortly after she got ill, two days later, she went down to from Lusaka to a wedding in South Africa and then went back. And so there was some confusion about whether 
she actually picked up the infection in South Africa or in Lusaka. What were the symptoms she was complaining of? Well, initially, all of these things, I mean, if you talk about Ebola or any of these neuroadjectives or severe diseases, people start with very nonspecific, the same way influenza starts with headache and muscle pains and just not feeling well and, and fever. And she was taking sort of pills for headache and that sort of thing. And then uh, she went down to the wedding in South Africa and she returned on the Sunday evening. And, and from the Monday, she was feeling extremely ill and, and didn't go back to work at all and saw several doctors in time. And by the Friday, she was medically evacuated from South Africa. And the following day, she died here. And what was the cause of death? What normally happens is people who are extremely ill, whether it be Ebola or anything else, the picture is very similar to, say, even a bacterial infection, a so-called septicemia. It could be typhoid, could be meningococcal septicemia. So it's a very similar picture. And so clinically, the clinicians do the right thing. They, they pump these people full of antibiotics in order to save life. But the trouble is then, if you do a blood culture to try and diagnose the illness, you're not going to find the answer because there's all those antibiotics. And so people die off of one-off, shall we say, illnesses like that in every city in the world every day. So there was nothing sort of deemed to be unusual about her death. She, she was deemed to be a, a bacterial septicemia and no results were obtained and her, her, her body was sent back. So how did you find out that it was something unusual? Well, it was only a, two weeks later when a paramedic who had flown down in the air ambulance with him ended her flew down and, and with the same symptoms, was also medically evacuated that people put two and two together, you know, realized there was something unusual. And that's often the case. Talking about emerging diseases early on this program, quite often people you know, can, can have an emerging disease and, and a one-off like that is not noticed. And it's only when there's cumulative evidence. And so when the second person came down and that person developed the same symptoms and then a, a happened to be admitted to the same hospital, and a day later, women recognized, look, this looks identical to the first one. And can you tell us what the actual organism was that they were suffering from, and where do you think it came from? Well, it's, it's, this whole group of organisms are known to be associated with rodents. They, they, they cause chronic infection in rats and mice of various species. Each of these viruses tends to be associated with a particular rat species or rodent species. Mice. So how do you think the lady got it from the rat? Huh. That's a big question yet to be answered. Uh, yeah, one of the things is there was a lot of confusion initially. Did it arise in Zambia or did she become sick in South Africa? But we believe it was Zambia. And one of the things is around the circle there's been an increase in wheat farming. And people have planted more acreage because the price has gone up and so on. And, and that's the sort of thing that happens in nature or, or human intervention, that we create a bonus situation for rats and mice and, and there's all this wheat around and grain crops and there's a population explosion and maybe that had something to do with it because she lived on the edge of town and indeed worked on the edge of town. And Bob, just to finish off, could you tell us very, very briefly um, what, what can you do about this in future and what's the likelihood of it recurring? Well, I, 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 I suspect it will recur and it's just that we'll be you know, better geared up next time to recognise it. I think even... In Zambia, the physicians are, are very good and, and they will recognise. Thank you very much. That's Professor Bob Swanipole, um, who is the, uh, who's from the National Institute for Communicable Diseases in South Africa.
And now, because it's nearly Christmas here at The Naked Scientist, we've had lots of yummy biscuits in the studio. But someone who doesn't need biscuits because she's sweet enough, it's Diana O'Carroll <laughs> with this week's question of the week. They are yummy biscuits. Well done, Kat. It's a, a triumph in the kitchen, I think. Um, well, this week, we've got to get some festive food ready to test this question. This is Rick Shep from Vermont, USA. And my question is, what exactly is tryptophan? And does eating turkey make you sleepy? So is it worth going for seconds this year? Hi, I'm John Fry. I'm a consultant in food science. My speciality is nutrition, dietetics and low-calorie foods. There's been a question about sleepiness caused by tryptophan in Turkey. And this is a popular myth in the United States that a feeling of sleepiness arises after the Thanksgiving meal. And it's caused by the Thanksgiving turkey having a high content of a substance called tryptophan. Tryptophan is an amino acid, one of the building blocks of protein, which means that pretty much all proteins contain some tryptophan, but turkey's not unusual in its tryptophan content. It has about the same amount as chicken or beef. Tryptophan is involved in the desire to sleep after a heavy meal, but only indirectly. The root cause of the drowsiness is the large carbohydrate intake that usually accompanies a celebration festive meal. All those roast potatoes and the stuffing, not to mention sugar-rich puddings, they all result in a burst of insulin in the bloodstream as the body tries to cope with this influx of sugars. One of the side effects of this secretion of insulin is that tryptophan gets into the brain more easily. And once there, part of the tryptophan is transformed into a substance called melatonin. Melatonin is a hormone involved in sleep regulation, and it can encourage sleep. But really, it's the carbohydrate in a heavy meal that triggers drowsiness, and tryptophan is just a bit player in the biochemical consequences of overindulgence in carbohydrates. So, tryptophan is an essential amino acid, and you probably get pretty ill without it in your diet. Also, on our forum, JNA noted that cheese has the most tryptophan per gram of any food, which maybe makes an interesting link with all those vivid, cheesy dreams, although I think you would have to eat quite heroic amounts of it. <laughs> well, next week I'll be investigating further the science of Christmas stuffing. Hi, I'm Marie from Harrogate in North Yorkshire. My question is, this Christmas, when I get loads and loads and loads of chocolate for Christmas, will it be better for me to eat it all at once, or will it be better for me to eat maybe about five or so a day? Not that I'd plan to, of course. Does she mean kilos, Diana? <laughs> well, it's probably me, actually. <laughs> um, well, it's a, it's a tricky question, isn't it? Do you gobble it, gobble it all at once or do you uh, nibble at it slowly? <laughs> Let us know what your tactics are by emailing chris at thenakedscientist.com or by writing it on our forum at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Thank you very much, Diana O'Carroll, for this week's Question of the Week. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. It's The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Katani. Now, earlier in the show, Ben and Dave set out to investigate the biological basis of mint making your mouth feel cold and chilli making it feel hot. Now it's time for Ben to take the Tabasco temperature test, all in the name of Naked Science. 
Welcome back to Kitchen Science, this week coming from a medical room in the Department of Pathology at Cambridge University. We have with us today an oral thermometer used for measuring temperature, of course. We have some mints and we have some Tabasco sauce. And we're going to find out if the cold mouth effect of mints or the really hot mouth effect of chilli is a real effect or if it's really just a trick. So Dave... First of all, I guess we need to take a base measurement of my mouth temperature. So I've got a little digital thermometer here. I'll turn it on and I'll put it in your mouth. So how long do I need to keep this in for? Basically, you want to leave it in there as long as your thermometer wants to be left in. This one bleeps at us when it's ready. We're measuring the temperature where you're going to be having the mint later. So at the moment, it's on top of your tongue. So remember to put the mint where you're measuring the temperature. We'd expect the temperature of your mouth to be a bit below your core body temperature, which is 37 degrees centigrade, because your tongue is quite a long way away from your heart and your major organs, and you're breathing past it, which will cool it down. Ah, oh, now that seems to be bleeping. It seems to reckon the top of your tongue is 36.3 degrees centigrade. Okay, 36.3 degrees, so we'll need to remember that. And now I need to eat yet another one of these delicious mints and see if I get the right cold effect. So... I'll pop this in. While I'm sucking on this mint, how does my mouth detect temperature anyway? Well, your mouth, and in fact the rest of your body, has got two types of temperature sensors. Ones which sense temperature increasing, heat sensors, and others that sense temperature decreasing, cold sensors. With the cold sensors, if the temperature drops, then it opens little gates inside the nerve cell. And this allows charged sodium ions in, which changes the voltage inside the cell. This change in voltage triggers a signal called an action potential, which goes up the long tail of the nerve cell up towards the brain. Where my brain can then interpret it as saying, I've got cold. That's exactly right, yes. So I've been sucking on the mint for a little while now, and my mouth definitely feels cold, especially when I'm breathing past the mint. So shall we measure the temperature again and see if there's any real change? That sounds good. So once again, I'll pop the thermometer in right on top of my tongue. Sorry, Dave, can you explain? OK, so we've got the thermometer on the top of Ben's tongue in exactly the same place we had it before. Um, in a few seconds, it will give a nice, happy reading and tell us how much the temperature has changed. OK, brilliant. So that says the temperature is actually 36.5 degrees centigrade, which is in fact 0.2 degrees centigrade warmer than it was last time. OK, so even though my mouth felt a lot colder, it felt like a fresh glass of iced water, really quite cold. But actually, the temperature inside my mouth, the physical temperature, has gone up. Yeah, that's actually what you'd expect, because the reason why a mint makes you feel cold is nothing to do with actual temperature. It's because there's a molecule inside the mint called menthol, which, when it meets these cold sensors, will actually cause them to open their sodium gates without any change in temperature. They then send a signal up to your brain, say they're cold, even though they're not. So the menthol has actually fooled my brain by fooling the nerves in my tongue into thinking that my mouth is really cold. Does this mean that actually the temperature in my mouth went up because my brain was telling it to get warmer because it thought it was cold? It's quite possible. If, if part of you is cold, then your brain could well send more blood to it to try and warm it up again. So it is quite possible that increase in temperature is to do with that, although it's so small it could just be random. You'd have to do a lot more tests to be sure. Now here's the bit that I'm not particularly looking forward to, because we've determined that mint makes my mouth feel cold but doesn't actually change the temperature. So I'm guessing your next test is the Tabasco. Yeah, I'm afraid it is, Ben. OK, so we'll use the last temperature reading, 36.5 degrees centigrade. And if you'd like to put a little drop of Tabasco on your tongue, and um, we'll see what that does to the temperature. OK, well, this is normal Tabasco, which is, of course, made of 
made of chilli peppers. So what I'm going to do, I'm not going to be foolish enough to pour this onto my tongue. That's far too big a risk. I should put a small drop on my finger and then I will taste that. So I can immediately feel the stinging, the sort of burning. I, I really like the taste of chilli, so it tastes nice, but that really does feel like it's starting to burn my tongue. I better get this thermometer in and see if there's any change happening. Well, I must admit, I, I'd quite like this to be over. <laughs> it really does feel like my mouth is on fire. I'm, I'm impressed, Ben. I have to say I hate chilli, and I'm very glad it's you doing this and not me. Okay, we have a reading. What does it say, Dave? This is very interesting. It's 35.3 degrees centigrade. So actually the temperature of your mouth has dropped a lot. So your theory, which you came up with earlier, about your body trying to compensate for the apparent change in temperature, I think could well be right, because your body obviously thinks its mouth is really hot, time to cool it down. So why does chilli make it feel like my mouth is much hotter when actually it's getting cooler? This is very, very similar to the menthol. It's exactly the same idea, but this time, instead of menthol triggering the cold sensors, another molecule called capsaicin will trigger the heat sensors. These then send signals up to your brain and say they're getting hot. Fantastic. Well, I guess the only thing to find out now is, will a chilli cancel out a mint? That's right, Ben. (laughs) I'm very impressed with your dedication to science, I have to say. Okay, well, I'm going to try some Tabasco sauce on one of these mints and see if they cancel out. But I think you should try that out at home. So let us know if you found any temperature change and let us know your experience with mints and Tabasco. And we'll be back with more next week. (laughs) Idiots. So mint and chilli act in very similar ways to fool your senses into thinking they feel hot or cold. Now, Ben did actually try the Tabasco mint. And when he was able to talk again, he said that it came in waves of heat, then cold and was very strange experience. Now, if you've tried it, do get in touch and tell us what you found. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. Or you can tell us all about it on our forum. And that's thenakedscientist.com slash forum. Now, Ben did also let on that he thinks it might be strangely addicting because he said he had a bit of a hankering for repeating the experiment earlier today so if you do try it then we don't take any responsibility for addicting consequences chili mint addiction i've got a few questions here for you chris Uh, a question from andrew douch and he says why were colds so bad for indigenous inhabitants presumably this is the stories you get of when explorers go to isolated communities and then all the people get really bad illnesses that's true And the reason is that isolated populations in distant geographical areas, which in other words, when we say isolated, were cut off from the mainstream viruses circulating and other infections circulating where there were big populations, say in Europe, those individuals didn't have the same selective genetic pressure to have a more powerful immune system. So if you compare the number of genes that people who are Native American Indians and South Americans, for example, had for their immune system presenting information to itself. So when a cell gets an infection, it presents um, various aspects of what it's seeing washing around the body to the immune system in these things called HLA genes. Well, the native populations had far fewer of these than the Europeans did. So viruses that breed in Europe are much more virulent under those circumstances because they have to have all these immune evasion strategies built in in order to outwit the much more powerful immune presenting abilities of a European population. So they're really nasty. They tend to be more powerful, yeah. And if you take them to a population that are more vulnerable, they haven't seen them before, therefore there's been no pressure on that population to evolve these defence mechanisms. Those kind of viruses are like a souped-up virus, and it's 
overkill. They don't need to be that powerful and it makes people much iller than it would otherwise be. So there's the evidence that viruses are programmed to cooperate with the immune system of the host they naturally infect and if you put them in a different context they can be much worse because they're over-optimised for that particular host. So I'll just tear through it. Um, on a related subject, uh, in treating viruses, a question from Ivan Doikoff here, and he says, can we target the unchanging portion of virus genetic material? This is the RNA, the code that's in the virus. Yeah, what he's getting at is that some viruses change bits of themselves, like the flu changes its H genes, haemagglutinin genes, so that the surface coat of the virus looks a little bit different. This is called genetic drift. And this is down to genetic mutation. When the RNA copies itself, it makes mistakes, and this translates into a slightly different structure for the virus. This is useful to the virus because it makes it look different, so the immune system struggles to recognise it a second time. But some bits of the virus do such a crucial job that they can't afford to change, because if they did, they would therefore impair themselves. So there are some unvariable or invariable bits of the virus that don't change. And what he's asking is, could we exploit that in order to make better treatments for viruses? And the answer is yes. There are several examples of how people are trying to do this. A good example is in flu itself. There was a recent study that was published in PNAS where researchers looked at the way in which a flu vaccine works. And flu vaccines are based on the haemagglutinin coats of the virus. You just make a virus, put it into an egg, you get some virus shrapnel, if you like, out of the egg and you inject that into people. But if you watch how the flu changes over time, a vaccine that works against one type of flu might not work against another. But if you get lots of examples of flu virus, compare them genetically, you can find elements of the surface code of the virus that have never changed over that time. And if you make a vaccine out of that, and in the case of the paper I'm referring to, these people did it with a DNA vaccine. They just injected the DNA from that little bit of the virus coat. That hadn't changed, and it was very effective against a very broad repertoire of viruses. So that might be a better way of doing it. Another good example is HIV, which has to bind onto CD4 receptors on the surface of our immune cells. Well, if the virus were to mutate that bit of itself too much, then it wouldn't be able to infect anymore because it wouldn't be able to recognise the target. And so researchers are now looking at ways to specifically target the structure on the virus, which the virus keeps very hidden, but which doesn't change in order to block HIV. Fascinating. And a final question from Steve in Norfolk, who says uh, he's been discussing with his family the question on where does sexually transmitted diseases originate. Uh, They must come from somewhere. A lot of these are obviously viral, some are bacterial, but where do sexually transmitted infections come from? Well, the answer is wherever there is an ecological niche, something will spring up to occupy that niche. So, in other words, where you've got an opportunity for spread to occur and you've got humans coming into close personal contact, and it doesn't matter whether you're kissing someone and spreading Epstein-Barr virus that causes glandular fever or you're talking about other kinds of viruses and bacteria that can spread sexually, there is an opportunity for spread to occur and you have a certain environment which is becoming in contact with another environment and that means there's an opportunity for anything that can tolerate those environments or exploit it to spread. And so because you have those opportunities and that contact anything that becomes able to exploit that environment will do so. That's just nature. And if, as viruses and bacteria evolve and change to exploit those environments, so they become specialised to do just that. And if you look at Neisseria meningitidis, the bacterium that causes meningitis, it's got a relative called Neisseria gonorrhea. In other words, the same kind of family, the same almost exactly the same species of bacteria can cause gonorrhea down there and it can cause meningitis up there. But if you move one to the other location, they can cause a sort of similar infection and similar manifestation in both places. So if someone um, gets Neisseria meningitidis down there, 
then instead of getting meningitis, they can, however, get a bit of an infection. I hope that we've shed some light on the science of emerging infections. Thank you very much to Kat Arney for coming in this week. Have a great Christmas, Kat, and see you in 2009. You too. Also, thank you to our production team, Tom Simpkins, Mira Senthalingham, Ben Valsler, Dave Ansell, and Diana O'Carroll. We're back next week with a special Christmas extravaganza. We'll be testing the claim that hot water freezes faster than cold water. We'll also be finding out how to combat that morning-after feeling and also looking into how alcohol actually affects your brain in the first place. So do join us for that question and answer phone-in extravaganza. Send your questions if you have one to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Have a great week and see you next time. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. 